Would you guys open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2? We will finish the book of, e- the book of Ephesians. No, just kidding. We'll finish chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians this morning. Get a little hopeful. Now, Ephesians has been such a blessing. I pray that it has been encouraging to you to walk this slowly through the book of Ephesians. I have a lot to cover this morning. Uh, we have 19, 20, 21, and 22 to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right in, okay? No big introduction, we're going to jump right in. Let's read chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. We'll pray, and then we'll get going. Let's read. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I don't think... Our minds and our hearts have any clue the astonishing thing that was just said by the Apostle Paul and just read, even for our own ears, even as I've studied this passage all week, I still don't feel that my heart even begins to comprehend what Paul is saying here in these words. Father, the truth that you've revealed to us in these these words. So Father, I pray as we study your words this morning, that you would enable our frail attempt to understand the beauty of your majesty this morning, Father. Your ineffable beauty, Father. Your untouchable, un, non-understandable beauty, Father, this morning. Incomprehensible. Uh, let us try to see and understand some of these words for us this morning. It's in your sense name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, so we just got done singing this song of we are, have been adopted in. We've been brought into. And this is what Paul is talking about this morning. That we are members of the household of God. Those who are redeemed, who have placed their faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ, and are persevering in doing that, that you and I are members of the household of God. Indeed, we're going to discover this morning that we are the house itself. And that's kind of the astonishing thing that Paul is talking about this morning, that we have been made into the household of God. We are members of the household of God, and in many ways, the house itself. I want to start in verse 19, right where Paul starts, in reminding us that we were strangers and aliens. We were strangers and aliens. What does he mean by, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens? Well, he's saying that at one time you were strangers and aliens. He's reminding us of what we've already talked about, what we've been talking about, what he has, in many ways, said multiple times. Verse 19a, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. What are we strangers and aliens to? What are we alienated? What were we alienated from? 
I just want to briefly, if you look back in your Bibles, look back in verse, we're just going to kind of fly through a couple things here. One of the things that we were alienated from is the plan of God. The very plan of God, knowledge of the plan of God and beneficiaries in the plan of God. But we are aliens to the plan of God. For example, verse 4 says, Even as He chose us in Him, this is of chapter 1 rather, verse 4, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So this choosing, as we call it, election. This choosing, we were aliens to this as far as knowing that we were part of this choosing. He says, verse 5, that he predestined us for adoptions as sons. So this choosing the destiny of these children to be sons. We were aliens to this plan and strangers to this plan. Verse 7 of chapter 1. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness. So this redemption and forgiveness. We were strangers to this. We were aliens to this. This was not ours to be had. The second thing is to the very presence of God. Aliens and strangers to the very presence of God. Verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This inheritance that we see in verse 11, I think is largely and primarily what he is talking about now at the end of chapter 2, and that is enjoying and being and having the indwelling presence of God. Then we get to verse 13 of chapter 1, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, so he's saying, when you became no longer strangers and aliens... And believed in Him, he says, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So this sealing with the promised Holy Spirit as it relates to the presence of God is something that we were strangers and aliens to. The third thing is that we were strangers and aliens to the very people of God. The very collection and gathering of God's people. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Indeed, Paul would say that we were strangers to life itself. And aliens from life itself. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. You weren't alive. You weren't half alive. You were dead. You were a stranger to life itself. In verse 5, even when, of chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. And Paul says that you now are no longer strangers and aliens to that. You're no longer a stranger and an alien to that. And Paul is working through now in verse 19 for us that Christ has laid the cornerstone and the foundation and is now building his church. And we talked over the past couple weeks about this new race, this new group of people that is no longer strangers and aliens to these promises, to this plan of God. 
but is now part of these new people. And God is, or Jesus rather, is building this new people. A people that will dwell with God and fulfill His plan for all time. What is God's plan for all time? Those people will fulfill. That His people would radiate His glory covering the whole earth. That God would spread His glory among the entire earth by indwelling His people. And these new people make up the household of God as they are indeed the house itself containing within it the presence of God by the Spirit. This is a profound thing that Paul is talking about. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk for just a brief moment about something, I think, a, a, a mindset that really, if we do not squash this going into this passage, and, and many passages for that matter, <clears throat> that, that we will miss Paul's bigger point here. And that is this. Our tendency is to see this passage, as well as many other passages, as only pertaining to ourselves. As this being a very individualistic pursuit. That this passage has application and implications only for me. And that is it. Our common problem, I believe, and the problem with many so-called Christians today is that functionally we view this household building here that God's talking about very individually. Or at best, familially, to make up a word. We view it as this is the pursuit of either just me and myself and I, if you want a third person in there, or my family's pursuit, meaning biological family. We practically read the text as if it's just simply me, myself, and I that Paul is speaking to here. As a matter of fact, I think we read so much of God's Word as if this is the only thing at stake. That's my individual life. We need to start reading the Bible. I want to challenge us. We've talked about reading the Bible as a church through like uh, Trinitarian lenses where we see the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in different places. I want to challenge us to read the Bible through ecclesiological lenses. What I mean by that is through lenses of the corporate church. That we would see how these passages speak to the body as a unit. The body as an entity. That we'd understand that how this word applies to me and, and what I do with the word in response, that that impacts more than just me, myself, and I, and it impacts more than just me and my family, but it impacts a corporate body. Some of us lack in our pursuit of holiness, not because we don't desire holiness, but because we don't see our holiness as a corporate concern. We just see it as it's kind of between me and God. But our pursuit of holiness, we're going to find out today, is at the least a corporate concern. It is a concern of the body. And your concern for your holiness impacts the body. So what happens then if we lack, some of us lack in our pursuit of holiness because Not because we don't desire holiness, but because we don't see holiness as a corporate concern. So what happens then is we don't bring the body in to help. Now some of this is because of pride. 
Because we don't really ultimately want help, and we don't really ultimately want to overcome it. And some of it's maybe just because of ignorance. I'm not trying to be mean. What I mean is just some of us just don't realize how important the body is in our pursuit of holiness. So I don't mean ignorant in, a, in an insulting way. I mean as we just, just don't know. So now you know. It's important. So you're no longer ignorant. Do something with it. Praise God. Yes. Amen. For others, your lack of holiness, I want you to understand, impacts the whole body. And your pursuit of holiness impacts the whole body. So both the lack of and your pursuit of impacts the whole body. It's a concern of the whole body, and it impacts the whole body. And you need to view this text, along with many other texts, if not the whole, whole scriptures, through a corporate lens, through a, a corporate entity type lens. This is why the local church is so important. In order for this passage to really mean anything, it must mean something within the context of the local church. Where people individually pursue God as a part of a whole pursuing God. God is not just building individual holy people, He's building a people together. And if we miss that here, we miss the point of the text. So my fear was in reading this, if we didn't kind of draw this out, that you would walk away going, I just need to pursue holy, so pursue holiness so that the temple in which God is dwelling can be pure and clean and miss the point. That's a good point, but there's more to it than just that. So my main point, Paul's main point today in these verses, I believe is this, that we are members Members of God's household and being made into the very dwelling place of God. That is astonishing. If it's not astonishing to you, then go read the Old Testament. The whole thing. We are being made into the very dwelling place of God. And we are members of his household. So fellow citizens and members, what this means is that we are part of a group of people. We're part of a gathering of people. The word ecclesia, which is where we get kind of the idea of church from, is, is means like a gathering of people. It's a group of people. The whole corporate entity is being changed, is what Paul's after here. And that each member is a part of the members, plural. Let's read you verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints. So you're a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. You are one person, a part of something much larger. And Paul is using a very illustrative metaphor here. Paul uses, he's already talked about this idea of far and near. Right? We talked about that earlier on in chapter 2. This idea of far and near has so much to do with the temple and how we can be near to God and how we can't be near to God and what has to happen in order for us to be near to God. Paul is just simply preparing the way for this metaphor here. This metaphor of the structure itself being built by Jesus in which God will dwell. 
as far and near Paul is leading us to this holy temple and dwelt by God. And the first thing, I basically now we're just going to look at, I don't know, I haven't even counted them, five, six things from this passage that God is doing, but also require a response of us. The first one is this. Jesus Christ must be the cornerstone in our lives and in this church. Jesus Christ must be the cornerstone in our lives and in this church. Every other stone that's a piece of the building is impacted by the cornerstone. If the building you want to be situated like this, then the cornerstone has got to be placed, the right cornerstone with the right edges in the right position if you want the rest of the building to face and be shaped in a particular direction. Every stone laid next to the cornerstone is impacted by the cornerstone. Then everything that's built upon the foundation is impacted in succession all the way back to the cornerstone that was laid. And Paul is saying in verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We'll get to that phrase next. First, but for right now, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now the way this was written, Paul is drawing very specific attention to distinguish Christ from the apostles and prophets. Saying that he essentially, he serves a very special function. So this is a foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. That's important. But what's most important, what is very specific to Jesus, is that he is the cornerstone. He is the vital stone. The foundation and all the other stones in the structure were determined by Jesus Himself. And Jesus is the most important building block in this structure. It's kind of like Jenga. You ever played Jenga? What happens, you know, inevitably like someone's going to pull out two of the three bottom ones, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about? The bottom, you're going to pull out two of the three. Has anyone played Jenga? Come on, y'all looking at me like you're dead or something. I just told you, Paul just said you were alive. All right. You hit two of the three. I, I imagine that you built the whole structure and there's just always only been that one stone. And the whole tower falls or stands on that one stone. It's built upon that one stone. Jesus is that stone. Paul's main point here is talking about Jesus being the the cornerstone is that the temple is built out and up from the revelation given in Christ. That what Jesus reveals specifically or namely the good news, the gospel, salvation for all through Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, reconciliation to God in that way. That it is built up and from this revelation in Christ. And that the apostles and the prophets will simply be elaborating on and explaining the gospel. As we know, Jesus has been from the very beginning. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. 
It has always been built up and out from Jesus Christ and His revealing work. Jesus' church will be built upon this. Anything built that isn't built upon Jesus as the cornerstone simply isn't a church and isn't a gospel-driven life. All right, we're going to expound upon that in the next few moments. Let me read that again. Anything built that isn't built upon Jesus as the cornerstone simply isn't a church and isn't a gospel-centered, driven life. So Christian, we encourage you. We, we've got to go and assess and reflect and be intentional. We must build upon Jesus and nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus must be the cornerstone in your home, and Jesus must be the cornerstone in this church family. I want you to think back to the story of Abraham and Isaac with me for just a moment. Abraham and Isaac. So Abraham was given the promise that, that God would, <clears throat> would, would bless the nations, that he would make for himself a people, he would give a place where, they would, where his presence would dwell with them. And he said, I'm going to do this through you and Sarah having a son. Through your offspring with Sarah. But what was happening? Sarah was not getting pregnant. But God had promised again that her seed and Abraham's, that, that, that God would fulfill his promises there. That in a sense, the cornerstone would be the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. That this was God's plan. It was through God's cornerstone, through His means, that the promise would come true. That everything else would be built upon this. But instead, what does Abraham do? He decides to lay his own cornerstone. And so he lays with Hagar and births Ishmael. And God says, no, uh uh-uh. Wrong cornerstone. And then what's he do? He provides Isaac. It's not your way. My promises are not going to be built upon your doing. My promises are going to be built upon my doing. And so, of course, he provides Isaac, and, and the promises go on, and, of course, find their fulfillment in Jesus. But here, we do the same thing. We do the same thing as a church, as individuals, that we want to build our own structures And in order to build our own structures, those require a different cornerstone. Because that's what happens. If Jesus is the cornerstone, we start trying to build life in the way we want it to be. What we find is that it just doesn't work. And so what we have to do in order for our structure to work, we often have have to introduce a different cornerstone. We want a certain type of lifestyle or a certain type of career. And so what do we do? We neglect the cornerstone. We want different for our kids than God wants for our kids. And so what do we have to do? We have to build their lives and our lives upon a different cornerstone. This gets very dangerous. We start building things and introducing our own foundations. And here's here's the deal, church. Here's what you have to understand. That these foundations that, that we're tempted to build upon, like they're not just passively sitting over to the side 
where we have to like actively go, okay, well, I'm going to forsake this cornerstone to go build on this cornerstone. No, our tendency is to do that, and that wrong cornerstones are pressing in on us. The culture, if you will, is pressing in on us. Build this way. Build upon this cornerstone. When God said, no, 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 forsake all of those things, Jesus is the only cornerstone. So how practically, I mean, how practically do we build upon Jesus as the cornerstone? Again, understanding the back of our mind, I'm going to talk about this a little bit later. It's ultimately Christ who is building this. So we're talking about our role in this. We'll get to more of that in a little bit. But for many of us, we think that just because I love Jesus, that means that everything I do will be built upon Jesus. And what you fail to understand and remember is that you have competing loves in your heart. You have things that compete for your affections all the time. So that would be fine. You could just love Jesus and everything would be built upon Jesus if He was solely and exclusively your only love. It would work. But He's not. Why? Because God's not finished His perfecting of you yet. You still fight this battle. So we have to get past this naivety that if I just love Jesus, everything will be okay. It's just crazy. We must fight. And I would say fight we will if Jesus is truly our cornerstone. And so how do we do it? Just a couple of very practical things. One, we understand and apply the gospel to every area of life. That's what he means by cornerstone. How do we, now, how do we do this as a church? How do we take the gospel and apply it to everything in life? That's why we have, as a church, this idea of identity and rhythms. Who we are in Jesus, and then how we live out these rhythms. So this is what we think. Because of the good news of Jesus, we are no longer selfish, isolated, idolaters, promoting our own ignorance and religion. Let me repeat that for you again. Because of the good news of Jesus and our faith in Jesus, we are no longer identified as selfish, isolated, idolaters, promoting our own ignorance and religion. Instead, we are missionaries, promoting the good news of Jesus, servants, promoting the good of others, worshipers of the only true God. These are things that are true of us because of who we are in Jesus Christ. But because of who we are, this impacts then what we do because we are missionaries. We share good news of Jesus, not good news of our own religion. We are servants because we are in Christ, not promoting our good and our selfishness, but promoting the good of others. This is the whole idea of the cornerstone. That every part of the structure is impacted by the placement of the cornerstone. That's what we mean by how does the gospel shed light on every part of my life? How does it impact the deepest corners of my heart and my life and the actions that come forth? I would encourage you that if your building is somewhat out of whack... Maybe you've introduced a second cornerstone. Maybe you've brought something else into the mix to build upon. But I would encourage you to think through things like this. How do sports fit next to the cornerstone? They can have a place. Praise God. I enjoy sports. How do they fit? 
How does your anger fit next to the cornerstone? How does that fit? There's a righteous anger. There's also a sinful anger. Most of us are usually on the latter. But how does anger, how how does anything, how does your child's education fit next to the cornerstone? How does your taking advantage of your elders' teaching and the teachings of the church fit next to the cornerstone? I mean, let's ask this question, really. What do we want for our lives? What, What do you want for your life? Too much of what we want is often defined and conditioned in our hearts by the culture, by the spirit of the age by the power that is at work, the power of the air. It says, you should want this for your life. God says, uh-uh, you don't want that for your life. It leads to destruction. You want Jesus to be the cornerstone of your life. And indeed, He will be. But we have a role in being intentional You don't want the culture. And I think you'd be surprised. You start working through this. How much of my mind has been conditioned by the culture? That I want life to look a certain way because the culture says it needs to look this way. Jesus is the cornerstone. So the second practical, and this will move us on to our next point here. But as we learn, so Jesus is the cornerstone. Second, and we learn this, applying this gospel to every area of our lives, we learn this through Jesus' words, which leads us to the next point, that we must learn the foundation laid for us by the apostles and the prophets. Jesus is the cornerstone. Here's what's awesome, is that we don't have to figure out how different pieces fit next to the cornerstone, because God has laid a lot of that out for us. He's given us instruction on that. Now, if we are going to be built upon the cornerstone, we, by the power of the Spirit, must be built upon the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. The first part of verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Apostles, what is he talking about? I am of the conviction that we don't have modern day apostles. This was a one-time office. They were specifically commissioned and sent by the Lord Jesus. The twelve apostles minus Judas and Paul himself. They received the revelation of God through the Spirit to understand the mystery of Christ. And their task was to proclaim the gospel. So they heard the good news of Jesus and they explained the good news of Jesus. Now, prophets, what does he mean by prophets? There's actually debate on what he means by prophets. This could be the prophets of the Old Testament. could be the prophets only in the New Testament. I don't think that that's going to make a big difference on our understanding of this passage. Basically, Jesus, here's what happened. Jesus laid the gospel, and the apostles and the prophets simply exposited those words for us. So they took the good news of Jesus and shined light on on all of life for us. This is why I think it's just utterly foolish for us to not give ourselves to the study of God's Word. 
The gospel is good news. The scriptures explain it. If you want good news, you need the scriptures. Who doesn't want good news? Like, who wants bad news, right? Let's not live each day wanting bad news. Let's live each day desiring good news. And the scriptures explain the good news. And the whole point Paul is making here, I think, in verse 20 is this. That our membership in God's people rests on the normative or the standard teaching that arises from God's divine revelation. God has revealed Himself, and here's the teaching. Our membership in God's household, being among His people, rests on that foundation. God's revelation of Himself. Standard teaching is what has come to us in the Scriptures. And this is what we rest upon, are built upon. I'm going to encourage you, as as we think about here, this pure life, uh, as we think about pursuing holiness and being built into these holy temples, that, that your understanding, your love as well for the foundation of the Scriptures and Jesus as the cornerstone, that this has a direct correlation to your being built into a holy temple. I want to encourage you this, that God's revelation, His Word, is exclusively the foundation. So just to make this explicit, your emotions are not the foundation that the structure is being built upon. Your stories are not the foundation to which the structure is being built upon. Thank God our past is not even the foundation. Our sin is not even the foundation. What our parents believed, what our church believed, these things are not the foundation to which it is upon Jesus the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets. This is what we are built upon. Exclusively. These other things have parts in that. But we're not built upon that foundation. Thank God, right? Thank God we have a foundation that is sure and steady and unshakable and unmovable that doesn't change with the shifting of the wind. Christian, I want to encourage you to look at the building that's going on in your life and assess what's the foundation look like. Am I building on the right foundation? The implication here is that we need the Scriptures. We desperately need the Scriptures. We need to love the Scriptures. We need to learn the Scriptures. Why? Because Jesus has revealed Himself as the cornerstone in the Scriptures. The apostles and the prophets have explained it in the Scriptures. The building functions only in relationship to Jesus is what Paul is getting ready to tell us next. If you look at verses 21 and 22, these are parallel clauses, parallel thoughts. He's basically going to say the same thing, or at least very similar things, two times. Each of them has this idea of in whom. So it's in whom, meaning in Jesus. So what he's getting ready to say only functions in relationship to Jesus. And the next one is this. Jesus 
is building, or the first of those two, Jesus is building us together as he builds us upon his rightful foundation. Jesus is building us together. He's the one ultimately doing this work. I want to give you a a very brief connecting this back to the Trinity for just a moment. There's really two things going on in this passage. One, Christ is joining us, His people, together. Us together. This redeemed person with this redeemed person. You see this in the Jews and the Gentiles now becoming one new race. There is a unity of these people. The second thing we see is that this new race is being joined to the foundation it was built upon. It's being joined to this foundation. Where do we see this? I, I don't have time to flesh through a lot of this, but I want to encourage you, when you think about the Trinity, a couple things. One, why unity among God's people? Why unity among God's people? Because we see unity and community within the Trinity. Because there is, this is why it will accurately reflect the nature of our God. Why does He want unity for His people? Because it displays unity, the unity in the Trinity. Second thing, why unity to the good news of Jesus? I would encourage you because the unified Trinity always carries out the good news and decrees of the Father. So we are being joined to, we are responding to the good news of Jesus, just as Jesus and the Holy Spirit respond to the good news of the Father. The Father decrees for these things to happen, and the the Son and the Spirit react and carry out these good news, these good decrees. Both of these actions, both this binding us together and binding this new race together to God, or the, particularly the foundation it's built upon, I think find its origin in, very character, in the very character and nature of God. This is why we are, should be unified as a church. Because we reflect something untrue of the Trinity when we do not, and when we are not. And I just want to make sure <clears throat> that we're clear when we are talking about the structure being, born, being built together, God is not satisfied with surface-level unity. He is after wholly unified people. Let's read verse 21. It says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom the whole structure being joined together. Paul is not speaking here about every building, every local congregation being joined together to make up the universal church. I don't think Paul's speaking about the universal church at this point. I don't think he's talking about all people saved and redeemed for all time. I don't think Paul's talking about that. I think Paul is talking about these three pieces. The cornerstone the foundation, and then the structure atop that being joined together. 
I think Paul is talking about particularly, he's talking to the Ephesians, and he's saying, you Ephesians are being built together on top of this structure. We, the structure, if you will, is being built together as a family. We talk about that as an identity. We are a family. We are being joined together. We are being united to press out the kingdom markers where the presence of God will dwell. I want to remind us here that this is an ongoing activity, that this building is still under construction. That the building is growing and progressing toward its ultimate goals we'll talk about is this holy dwelling place of God. That we are being joined together. And this is God's doing. I mean, we have to think about that. If we are being joined together into a family, how do we live that out? What are the implications of that? I don't have time to flesh all this out, but thinking about this, like one encouragement I would say as an implication from this, if God is the one joining us together, then don't just hang out with people that are easy for you to hang around. Say, even in house gatherings. Ask God, how would you build us together? With whom would you build me together? What relationships do you have intended to build us together for my life, for our family, for our church? The structure is being joined together. There is such a unity piece going on here that's incredibly important. Thinking in terms of what is best for the body should be things that we should always be asking ourselves. And he says, We together are being joined to the foundation. Now, let me speak to you. If you're a covenant member of renovation, let me speak to you specifically for just a moment. If you are not consistently striving to be built upon the foundation, the Scriptures, and Jesus as the cornerstone, then you will have an active hindering in the growth and purpose that God has for this body. Our our holiness together is important. That when there is an impure part of the body that impacts the whole thing, my, my, the encouragement is you're not, just, you're not just like a wing of the house that's over here not having any impact on the rest of the body. But you're a part of the structure of the body. I want to encourage you with this. There's kind of two, if I could put people into two groups with, that I, we encounter, I think, as pastors. One is this. People who are not following Jesus and striving to build upon the right foundation. Their lives often look prideful, always trying to deal with sin on their own, and the subsequent wallowing therein. Right? I'm trying to say this as gently as I can. Their lives often look prideful, always trying to deal with sin on their own, and the wallowing therein. On the other side, there's people who are genuinely following Jesus, striving to build upon the right foundation, their lives look like humility, seeking exhortation and overcoming sin, growing in holiness, a trajectory towards holiness. I know those are 
potentially offensive things that I just said. We are being built together. And we need to understand that if we're being built together, one part of the body impacts the whole. That my pursuit of holiness impacts my brother or my sister. It either encourages them or discourages them. And it impacts them in other ways as well. I want you to know as, a, as your pastor, one of your pastors, I, I am deeply encouraged when I see, and I see this very often, people who are striving to follow Christ, who are living, trying to live in humility and overcoming sin and growing in holiness. I, when Hebrews 13, 17 says to submit to your elders and to basically make this a joy for them, like that makes it a joy to see people overcoming sin, see people living this good news of Jesus out in their lives. Incredibly encouraging. I want to just lay this. I know it's heavy. I want to lay this on you go and understand that we're being built together. This is a community project, if you will. You see, the chief characteristic of the structure we are being built into, according to this passage, is holiness. The chief characteristic of this body is holiness. This body that Christ is building is holiness. Look at verse 21. It says, In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You know, it kind of goes back to our earlier question. What do we want out of life, right? What are, we, what are you hoping to get out of life? But the next question would be, if we're not growing into a holy temple in the Lord, then what in the world are we doing? Like we as people, as a group and as individuals, should be growing into a holy temple of the Lord. I mean, we, we can't just try to be better religious people. That's not the point. It's not just... I just got to do this checkbox of do's and don'ts. We're talking about being a holy temple and dwelt by the holy God of creation. That's what we're talking about here. It's so much more than a checkbox of religiosity. Purity of the body, both as individuals and as a church, must be our pursuit. This is what God's doing. Now, obviously, there's, again, there's this tension, and I know in some of our hearts there's this tension because in the passage, God's doing this. But you keep talking about what we're doing. Yes, because it's a both and. It's a, we're working hard, but God's ultimately the one doing it. What does that mean? It just means He gets credit for it all, and we can trust Him at the end of the day. Praise God. More on that in a bit, even though you didn't say praise God. Amen. There we go. Our holiness, again, is ultimately God's work. He's growing, joining us together, and it's in, his, in this joining us together is growing us into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, here's what I want to say. Many of us have outward moralism confused with holistic holiness. What does it mean to be holy? Right? So, in many ways, we struggle with being the same as the Pharisees where we just want our outward lives to look good. God's after so much more than that. Sermon on the Mount, anyone? Right? 
It's about what's in the heart. It's about what's in the heart, pure, without sin. You know, it's dangerous, church, when we talk about these kinds of things is that we simply compare ourselves to other people, to other churches, to other Christians. And, and I mean, of course, I'd be somewhat amazed if we even did that. I mean, I tip, think typically we compare ourselves to like the worst lost person we can think of. And we think, well, I'm not like that. So I must be doing good. Well, God's doing good, yes. But don't compare yourselves to that. We're not okay just because we don't do the terrible things of the world. God is after so much more than that. What is going on in our hearts and how does that speak to the glory of God or how is that showing us worshiping God versus worshiping the same things that the world worships? We can worship the thing in our heart that the world worships and just not act on it. That's still sin. That's still a lack of holiness. So let's not confuse outward moralism and kind of shining the outside of the bowl with holiness from the heart out. But I want to encourage you that growing into holiness, in this passage, he's speaking of it as a corporate activity as well as an individual activity. I think the primary thing here is a corporate activity. That these people are being joined together, growing them together into a holy temple in the Lord. So it's an, it's an activity, an event, a, an ongoing building that impacts the whole body. And it's an activity that I think in, must involve the whole body. But I want to circle back around for just a moment on this idea of holiness. If you are not sure, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, this holiness, and you'll see why particularly here in a few minutes, that this idea of holiness is important as it pertains particularly to God indwelling you. God taking up residence in your life. And what has to happen is the sin that is showing the unholiness must be dealt with in order for God to indwell, in order for God to be king of your life. You won't be perfect, as we're talking about this idea of being holy, but Jesus was. Jesus was perfect. That He died to take the punishment for your sins. That's what we mean by the good news of the gospel, that He died to take your sins. And your response is to repent of your sins, to ask for forgiveness and realize that you're unholy before God, but that Jesus was holy and He died for you in your sins. Trust in His rightness before God. To encourage, if, if you don't hear another word I say this morning, please hear those words. And I also want to encourage you, if you want to talk about it, please see me after service or <clears throat> call me. I don't care. We'll talk about it. Last couple points here for us this morning. The final goal 
is a dwelling place for God. The final goal is a dwelling place for God. So this idea of holy temple in the Lord and dwelling place for God, again, are kind of parallel descriptions of the same thing. So verse 22, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So this in Him, this in Jesus, let's look at that phrase for just a second. Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the Father, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. Now he just said, Paul just said earlier that we have access to the Father who is in heaven. Now according to Old Testament prophecy, the temple at Jerusalem was to be the place where all the nations at the end time would come to worship and pray to the living God. You can go read this, Isaiah 66, Micah 4. So the temple imagery right now, here in this passage, is meant to be understood in a fulfillment, I believe, of these promises. These Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah 66, Micah 4. That this temple would be surrounded by all these people coming to worship and pray to the living God. So now, through Christ, Gentiles have been brought near to God. And along with the Jews, they have become the new temple. The place where what? Where God dwells. This Old Testament prophecy coming to fruition here. And the last thing I want us to see is that the Spirit is the power behind it all. The Spirit is the power behind it all. It says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is by the Spirit, okay, that God will indwell this holy temple. Right? It's by the Spirit that God will indwell these people. It is by the Spirit that God's presence will fill this place. And it is by the Spirit that God's presence will fill our lives and so bring about this holy place devoted unto God. You see, the Spirit is the one at work. He is the agent bringing this to be under the direction of Jesus. So Christian, let me ask this question. What's, what's our response? I mean, how, do we, how do we respond to this? I mean, are we going to be holy? Are we going to be perfect? Were you this week? No, I wasn't. You know, the beauty of this is that Jesus was the perfect dwelling place of God, wasn't he? Jesus was the perfect indwelling or indwelt place of God. We're going to fail now. But we will not fail ultimately. Why? Let's think about this idea for just a moment. This holy temple and the indwelling of God. Here's the beauty of this picture. So we've been talking about this idea. God is growing this temple. 
holy to always indwelling this. At the same time, there's this tension because what is, what is our response and how do we live in light of that? How do we, how do we live holy lives and building upon the right foundation? The beauty of this picture, Paul's painted for us here, is that God doesn't simply wait until the building is complete in order to indwell it. Okay, let's think about that for just a second. By the miracle of the gospel and the wiping away of our sins, God indwells His people now. He does it now. It's not just, hey, you all, when I get done with you, you can finally enjoy my presence. You can finally have joy in me because I have taken over your life. One of these days, look forward to that. No, He indwells us by the miracle of the gospel now. That this building, so here's the deal, that this building this building that he's putting together actually derives its character of a holiness from the God who indwells it. So, you're supposed to go, Amen, right? Everybody, one, one two, three. Amen, there we go. Hallelujah. I'm about to get charismatic on you or something like that. This building actually derives its character. So as we're talking about this, building upon the right foundation and seeing Jesus as the cornerstone, pursuing holiness, doing this together as God is building this together, what's going on in the process is that God has already indwelt our hearts after He has wiped away our sin. This is why if you're not pursuing holiness and growing in holiness, you're probably not a Christian because God indwells His people. And when God indwells His people, His presence produces holiness. And at the same time, if you are pursuing holiness and you see your struggle and you fight and you continue to fail, don't lose hope. The one who indwells you is holy and more powerful than your own sinful tendencies. And He is making you holy. Don't lose hope. Be encouraged. Pursue harder. Run the race with greater discipline. Why? Because it's just reflective of the One who's indwelling you now and taking over the place. And see this as a corporate battle, not as an individual battle. He's indwelling these people as He indwells them individually. And my last thing to encourage you with would be this. Do you think about God indwelling you? Trust Him? Like, it's really, many times it's really that simple. Do you trust the Father who indwells? you trust that He has said these words that we even just talked about this morning? That He is growing you into a holy temple? Do you trust that? Do you trust that? When you sin, you seek repentance or forgiveness at whatever level and extent that requires. Understanding that He is the one at work in you. It is the very Father God, Holy One of the universe that indwells us from which we derive our holiness.
and we become the people that God is making us into. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your word this morning. Father, I pray as we are about to sing that we would behold this wondrous mystery. This wondrous mystery that we as Gentiles would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, that you could take a filthy, dirty place and so clean it to the standard for you to indwell it. And by some crazy mystery, you can do that even in the midst of our fleshly unholiness. And Father, you then with firmness and gentleness, with justice and mercy, and with great grace, Father, you bring about the growth of these people together as a place where you will dwell. And Father, I pray that our hearts long for your progression in doing that in us, that we long for greater unhindered joy in you, Father, both as individuals and as a people, and that we long ultimately for the day where we will dwell in your midst fully without the hindrance of sin. And Father, we give you praise for us. Let us behold your wondrous mystery, Father. Amen.